0: What I want you to do right now, if we have time, I'd like you to take, just take out a piece of paper and a pen, and I want you to write a couple of questions or a question that's come up uh, recently in your Bible reading, okay? And if we have time after I do this, after I answer these questions, um, uh, I will field a few other questions, and they can be from any place in the Bible, okay? Uh, But if you've had a a devotional question recently, uh, one that's come up in your devotions, just write that down. And if I can answer it, I will. Okay. So while you do that, let me explain why we're in the Book of Judges. As you know, in Sunday School, we've been working Isaiah 40 through 66. And this week, we were scheduled to arrive in Isaiah 60. Um, Isaiah 60 uh, begins a section of Isaiah that is uh, very challenging. Um, it's very challenging for a variety of reasons. Um, The hardest part about it is when it's talking about future events, okay? The trouble is Isaiah tends to do something that scholars call prophetic telescoping, okay? And what that means is Isaiah is predicting future events, but the future events can be mixed up a little bit. So he's talking, for example, about from Isaiah 61, for example. He's about the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus tells his people, today this scripture is being fulfilled in your hearing. But then the very next verse is talking about an event that's going to take place in the end times. And so from Isaiah 60 to 66, you get this very complicated shifting of future historical eras and when i got into it this week i realized that i needed a little more prep time to give that the justice that it needed Um, and uh and so at the same time i'd been getting uh, through our devotional plan as a church we hit the book of judges okay and i have fielded already at least five questions from uh, folks this week regarding the book of judges and i thought well Um, maybe what we'll do is I can answer some of these questions from the book of Judges in Sunday school and as a Sunday school lesson. And if I've gotten four or five questions on the book of Judges, then perhaps more of you have those very same questions. So I decided to convert that into a Sunday school lesson and save Isaiah 60 until I could have a little more time uh, to figure out. Uh, Let me be very clear. I will not figure out what Isaiah is talking about, but to wrap my mind around it a little bit more. Does that make sense, everybody? Okay. All right. Judges. Let me summarize the questions that I've received from the book of Judges. Okay. I think all of the questions I've gotten from the book of Judges can be summarized this way. What in the world? (laughs) Why is that happening? Well, that's a good question. I want you to go, I had you in Judges 1. Go with me to the end of the book of Judges. Go with me uh, to Judges 17. Okay, and I'm going to show you the premise of the book of Judges. I'm sorry, Genesis uh, Judges 18. Judges 18, I said 17 and then 18. Okay, this is the thesis statement of the book of Judges. The writer has been working toward this throughout, and then he finally comes to what the thesis statement of this book is. And it's this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, oops, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm reading it. I misplaced it. I didn't write down the reference. I thought it was 18.1, but it's this. In those days, there was no king in the land. Ah, I I was right the first time. Verse 17. Uh, Chapter 17, go to verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's 17.6. Okay, sorry about that. I was right the first time. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So, I don't want to be pedantic about this. I don't want to be overly simplistic. But when you come to the book of Judges and you find yourself asking the question that could be effectively summarized by, what in the world? The answer is, that's what happens when people do what's right in their own eyes. Okay? Or you could say it even a little different. Things get weird fast when people do what's right in their own eyes. And I want to show you this progression from the book of Judges. Okay, the book of Judges begins with Joshua. He's still alive. The people that were with Joshua, it says after the death of Joshua, but there were some people who were still alive while Joshua was alive, like Caleb and so forth. And the people were generally obeying Joshua. But soon enough, the people stopped obeying Joshua, which meant they weren't driving the foreigners out of their assigned allotments. Joshua dies in Judges 2, and suddenly Israel begins to get unfaithful, and the Lord, in chapter 2, begins to raise up judges. Now, the judges begin fairly normal. You've got Othniel and Ehud. We get kind of a different story with Deborah and Barak, or Barak. She is a prophetess. There is a history of prophetesses in the Bible, and the only real problem with Barak is that he's a a timid man. He's a a fearful man. He says, I'm not going to go to battle unless Deborah, the prophetess, unless you go with me. You, You told me God would be with me. Put your money where your mouth is and go with me. You know, that's that's no great sin, that's no great problem. He wins the battle. The consequence was that his, um, the credit to his defeat of Sisera was given to a woman, and indeed she deserved it. But that's, doesn't, that's not outside quite yet the realm of normal. But that's about the end of normal <laughs> in the book of Judges. Advance a little bit to chapter 6. We meet a man named Gideon. And we meet a man named Gideon. And Gideon is always afraid of all the wrong people. He's, he's, afraid, that, he's afraid to fight, and God has to convince him to fight. He's afraid to, to do this. He's afraid to do that. But then suddenly he wins with just this limited number of people. And when he, he was so afraid to go to battle against enemies, and suddenly, when we come to chapter 8, he's punishing allies for not helping him when he thought they should have helped him. You see that Gideon's arrogance and pride start to rise up in him, when actually it had nothing to do with his military prowess whatsoever. Do you remember the story? God said, You've got too many people. So, what I want you to do is take your army down to the drinking hole, and everybody who puts their hands in the water like this and drinks out of a cup is excluded. And everybody who just sticks their face in the water and drinks is in. Now, you'll hear people say, Oh, see, here's what's happening. A warrior who puts their face in the water is always. On the on the defensive and that's a good warrior and what God was doing was picking the best warriors actually, no Um, (laughs) the whole point of that passage is God was choosing what was weak and lesser, okay, and This was sort of a random way to weed out the army to reduce the numbers because I would venture to say that if we were to all go to a waterhole, the vast majority of us would use hands like a cup to do it. Um, And very few of us would just dip our faces in. Um, There's a few in every crowd, apparently. Um, And that's how Gideon's army gets chosen. But but Gideon, Gideon all of a sudden thinks he's the one that's doing it. now. And in the end, he says to his people, he says, I tell you what, I've done all this work for free. Here's how you can each of you take off an earring, each of you men take off an earring and throw it on this blanket, and and that will be my payment. And everybody was like, oh, great, that's what we'll do. And so he got paid a pretty healthy amount of gold, and he turned that gold into an idol, and then he took a whole bunch of wives, and then he flaunted his wealth by putting 70 of his sons on donkeys, and having them ride around and show off how powerful and rich and strong Gideon was. Gideon was afraid of fighting, he was afraid of offending people, but he was unafraid of idolatry. And this idolatry and pride ended up affecting the nation. That's like one more step toward odd and different and weird. And then we take a bigger leap, right, when we come to Samson. We come to Samson, and Samson is a a different story altogether. I'm sorry, before him we have uh, Jephthah. Jephthah is an unlikely judge. He's surrounded himself with scoundrels. God shows how things are continuing to turn. God tells him he'll give him the victory. And Jephthah makes a vow, and he says the first thing that comes out of the house will be given to the Lord, and what comes out but his daughter. Now, do you guys remember in the book of Deuteronomy? We're told that it's the father's job to keep their daughters from making rash vows. And because we're living in a time now where even the best of God's people are doing what's right in their own eyes. You don't have a father delivering a daughter from a foolish vow. You've got a daughter living with the consequences of a foolish vow. Then we come to Samson. And then we see things leap forward yet again in the weirdness category. Samson takes a foreign wife, she dies, Samson falls in love with a prostitute. Samson falls in love with Delilah. He's always playing with sin. He gets his hair cut. And then he ends up falling, but he repents in the end and ends up destroying more people in his death than in his life. But the whole time, as you're reading that, you're thinking, how is God using a person like Samson? Here he is, he's he's in his 50s now, and he's basically playing... Um, a game with this, this woman, Delilah, and the game is called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he's getting played by her. She doesn't know it. And in his lust, he's falling for this. And it's so sad to see. And he says that the, the text says the power of the Lord left him and he didn't even know it. And again, we've taken another step in the weird category just taking another step toward the weird, because everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Then we come to the place where it begins to get really weird. It begins with this scene in 17 of Micah and the Levite. The Levite is supposed to be a priest, but he's accepting payment to go be a priest somewhere else. We have a Levite who has his concubine... Gang raped, He takes his gang-raped and now-murdered concubine and chops her up into small pieces and mails the small pieces to the rest of the tribes of Israel. The men who gang-raped and murdered this poor woman were Benjamites. Israel goes... They receive the pieces of this chopped up woman. They go to war against Benjamin. In their zeal, they accidentally almost wipe out the entire tribe of Benjamin. There's not enough women in Benjamin to give wives to the men of Benjamin. But all of Israel swore a vow that they wouldn't give their daughters to the Benjamites. And so they say to the Benjamites, hey, there's a festival to a pagan god within our boundaries, and all the girls are going to go dance. So here's what you do. Go to the festival, hide out in the bushes, and when the girls go out to dance, run out there, grab yourself one, and head home. And we'll turn a blind eye. That way, we can honor our vow... And you can have a wife. And when the fathers came and said, hey, he kidnapped my daughter and took her back, we'll cover for you and say, let it be. That was their solution to this problem. Now, somebody please answer the question when I say, what in the world? What's the answer to that? This is what happens. This is what happens when everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Sin gets out of control in very unpredictable directions. Now, this comes as no surprise to anybody who's been in ministry for any amount of time. After. I don't know, Danielle, what do you think, five years in ministry? You become sort of shockproof to sin. (laughs) You hear things, and you just, you don't get less disgusted over it. You just shake your head, and you say, yeah, that's sin. That's what happens. That's sin. Sin just goes off in very strange, odd directions. And the whole point of the book of Judges is... When people start doing what's right in their own eyes, sin gets out of control. Sin goes in very odd directions. Now, what's important is the Judges fiasco continues. And what I want to show you is how Judges sets us up to read the rest of the Bible, okay? Because Judges gets dark, right? And Judges... The sin goes in crazy directions, and people are doing what's right in their own eyes. But, ironically enough, Judges sets us up for what's some of the best Old Testament literature. Okay? Let's advance forward to 1 Samuel. Okay? We're going to circle back a little bit. But 1 Samuel, go to 1 Samuel 1. The last two judges of Israel was a man named Eli, and then the last one was a man named Samuel. Eli had two sons, as you see here, whose names were Hophni and Phinehas, of of verse 3 of chapter 1. Eli seems to have started out a pretty good guy, but now he's a giant fat man, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are stealing meat from the people and are openly sleeping with women who serve around the temple area. And Eli is not doing anything about it. The Ark of the Lord gets taken. Eli finds out about it and falls over in his chair, and because he's so large, he dies. Before he dies, he appointed a successor. And for the first time, for the very first time, Israel gets a good judge. A really good judge. And that person's name is Samuel. And even with a really good judge, a godly and faithful judge, I want you to note That that is the first time. Once, go to to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. So they've got a really good judge. Verse 4 of 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So here they finally have a good judge, and what do they do? We don't want you anymore. We want want a king. Now Samuel is instrumental in Saul, but Samuel also anoints another person to be king. Go to chapter 16 with me. Saul is messing up. Verse 1 The Lord said to Samuel, the last judge, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from becoming king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Who is that? David. So the last judge, the people come to him and say, hey, you're old. turns out he had 30, 40 more years left to live. He wasn't that old. <laughs> it was an excuse, a pretext, because they didn't want him anymore. God gave the people the king they wanted, and they realized that that was a bad choice. And so now God gives... Them the king that he wants. the man that was a God uh, the, the man who was uh, had the heart of God, man after God's own heart. Now it's through David through the tribe of Judah that we're told that God will bring the Messiah. For even though David is this great king, wonderful man, He still is a man. He's imperfect. He makes several mistakes, some huge sins, some grievous sins. But God uses David to write almost our entire Psalter. David's son Solomon writes almost the entire book of Proverbs, all of Ecclesiastes, all of the Song of Solomon. You get this explosion of uh, inspired Bible and you get this explosion of Christological promises. Because the book of Judges had to show us that there was a need for a king, where people would listen to the word of the Lord. But even with the best human king, that falls short, doesn't it? And the best human king, all along, is saying, somebody is coming who's better than me one of my sons whom i'm going to call lord is going to rule over you and he'll do so in righteousness and perfection in fact he'll do so by giving his own life for his sheep so the book of judges isn't there just to show us that things get weird when people start following their hearts the book of Judges prepares us for how low things can get. But also it shows us how desperately we need God to intervene with his king. The answer to all the weirdness that you see is Christ. God's chosen one. Now, I want us to circle back because here's what people tend to think. They think, "Oh, that's right in the macro sense, okay? Let me explain what I mean by that. A person comes to me and my wife. They're having a terrible struggle, and sure enough, they've gotten themselves in a huge pickle. Their sins have taken over their lives. Everywhere they look, they're closed in. Uh, life is unmanageable, uncontrollable, and they're just really seems like everywhere they turn, they, they they hit a hard place. And maybe some of you have been there before. But people will come and they're sort of desperately crying out in their head. And I say to them something like this. I say, look, right now you're not, you, you have a knot in your life. And the knot is so tangled that neither you or I can untie it the only thing that we can do is cut the knot and we take the little strands and ask Jesus what would you like me to do with these strands what you need is for Christ to give you his mind on every one of these decisions and in time in time you will start to get traction you will start to see a path ahead. Your life will get better. You'll start to see the purpose in all this. But it's going to take one step at a time, asking Christ to help me deal with this problem, and then this problem, and then this problem. And I don't know how dealing with this one is going to affect that one. But that's not our place to think about it. You need Christ. Sin has gotten you into all sorts of weirdness, and you need Christ to help you deal with this point of weird, the and then the next point, and the next point, and so forth. Everybody seeing that? And when I often tell people that, they say something like this: "They go, I'm sure that's great for some people. I'm sure that's great for some people. Or." I believe Jesus can do that. But, left unsaid, I don't think he will do that for me. It's like we accept the broader general idea that Jesus can do something, that Christ Messiah can do something. But we don't like to think that Jesus can get in and help us in our personal So let's go to the book of Ruth. Go to Ruth 1. Okay. Ruth 1 takes place smack in the middle of Judges. <laughs> Read verse, chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the Judges ruled, there was famine in the land. Okay. <laughs> this is in the time of Judges. God said in Deuteronomy, when you're not doing right, I'm going to send famine, and the famine is designed to bring you back to me. Weirdness takes hold. Elimelech takes his wife, and they move out of country. They weren't supposed to do that. He lets his boys marry foreign daughters. They weren't supposed to do that. Elimelech dies. The boys die. And now Naomi is left with two pagan daughters-in-law, and all three of them are widows. Would you say that's a knot that's so tight there's no one solution to fix it all? So what does Naomi say? She says, you know what? I'm just gonna start following God's word. And that's the rest of the book. She goes home. this That's the first point. This proud woman accepts welfare that God had designed in his law. It's hard for anybody to accept welfare especially proud people, like Naomi was. In that, one of those pagan gals says, I'll just stay back here. The other pagan gal says, you know what, I'm not a pagan anymore. I'm coming with you, and your god is my god. And that gal's name was Ruth. And Ruth goes back home with Naomi. And Ruth is the one taking advantage of this welfare program. She's going to the corners of the fields and collecting the gleanings there might only be one or two righteous people in all of Israel who actually don't glean the corners of their land. There's one farmer who's actually following the word of God, and Ruth just happens to end up in his field. That man's name is, of course, Boaz. Boaz follows God's law. Boaz realizes that Naomi needs to be redeemed, not Ruth. Ruth doesn't need redeeming. Naomi needs redeeming. So he visits the next kinsman. He redeems Naomi by taking Ruth as his wife, all of it following God's word to the letter. And at the end of the book, Naomi is bouncing a baby grandchild on her knee, praising the Lord, and Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. In the middle of this land, where everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes, and things are getting weirder by the day one woman who also was doing what was right in her own eyes and her life got weirder by the day and her life got wrecked and she didn't know what to do started following God's word one point at a time. She stopped doing what was right in her own eyes and started doing what was right in the Lord's eyes. And in an unexpected way in very short amount of time, things start to change. Let's go back to that person sitting in front of me in the office, and I say, God can change your life, but you're going to have to start following him point by point. And they say, I just don't see how that's going to happen. Did Naomi imagine that Ruth would happen into Boaz's field? Did Naomi know that there was a man named Boaz? Maybe, maybe not. You know, what you forget is that God is now for you. God is for you if you're saved already. And in fact, the pain that you're feeling is probably, or is most definitely, his means to bring you back to him, which is your best. Now, what was for your disciplinary good is now for your non disciplinary good. And God can start moving in strange and unexpected ways. He starts putting together the coincidences. Now, why am I. Why was. There was another secret reason I wanted to do this today. Would you say, in our land right now, people are doing what's right in their own eyes? Is that a fair assessment? (laughs) Okay, you guys know my political stance. I'm very bipartisan. I don't trust any of them, okay? They're all corrupt, they're all crooked. Um, With very few exceptions, I'm granting there can be some exceptions. There's no ultimate hope in politics. That's why we don't talk about it. I think I think it's safe to say we live in an era where everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. So let me put the question to you. Could Naomi and Ruth and Samuel and David find Blessed, meaningful, happy lives in the midst of that. Could they? Well, of course. But what did they have to do? Yeah, they had to stop doing what was right in their eyes and start doing what was right in God's eyes. So, don't get discouraged stop looking around you that there's nothing but frustration and anger there look into God's word look to the people who surround you who want your ministry who want your time focus on what God would have you do focus on them and yes the land of judges might be ruling out there But inside the four walls of your house, inside your little ministry field, if you start following God's word, doing what's right in his eyes, you can find meaning and purpose and joy as you look to God's anointing. And against the backdrop of all that darkness, you can really shine all the brighter. So I would like to encourage you that you have unprecedented opportunities to shine greater than those who came before. As a side note, I would also argue that I'm not totally convinced we're in unprecedented darkness in our nation. I've read too much history to know that we're not that far off of where we were before. But I think it is safe to say that we are in a time where people are doing what's right enough. Why is the book of Judges there? What in the world? To show you, things get weird when you follow your heart. And things get really joyful and certain and sure when you follow God's anointing. And these books are a living illustration to that very point. So when somebody says, why did he chop up his concubine into twelve pieces and send him out? You say, because things get weird when you follow your heart, (laughs) okay? But there's good news, keep reading, okay? I had you write down your questions, I didn't get to them, my apologies. Um, But uh, hopefully that gives you some insight into why these books are structured the way they are, and that can be a help to you as you continue your Bible reading. reading Let's pray. Father, give us grace as we prepare for worship this morning. We live in an era where people are doing what's right in their own eyes. and Even here in Utah, where the, the majority religion among us are people who uh, follow what has been confirmed in their hearts. They are following their emotions. And so we, above all people, understand how dark that darkness can be. We see that affirmed when we read the book of Judges. So help us like Ruth and Samuel and David and Boaz, to trust you and to show our trust in you by following your word and ordering our lives to it. And I pray that you would bestow upon us that blessed, joyful, meaningful life that comes when we cease leaning on our own understanding and start trusting in you with all our hearts. For we pray all those things, all these things in Jesus' name.